Good morning. It is so great to be back with you here in Wichita. Um, I just came back this last Monday, so if I start speaking in a different language, I haven't been here long enough to remember where I'm at and who I'm talking to. But it's so good to be here and, and to be able to talk to you about someone other than myself this morning. Um, I'm going to talk to you guys this morning about your work in Ecuador. You just su- started supporting different missionaries in Salinas, Ecuador, and I was recently able to visit them. So that's what I want to talk about this morning. This is um, your, these are your new missionaries in Salinas, Ecuador. I know that you've heard about them. We've talked about them here from the pulpit before, but I want to give you a little more information about them today. This is the Canelon family, um, Kevin, his wife, Juribi, and Nathanael, that we call Nata. Um, they're a Venezuelan family who has graduated from the Bible Institute in Quito, Ecuador, and now they're working in Salinas as the Northside missionaries there. And the Rivas family, Alexis, Daneya, and Noah, um, are also working with them. They're also Venezuelans who have graduated from the Bible Institute there. And we got some good news this last week that Daneya is pregnant again. So we'll have a young missionary um, coming soon. So we're really excited about them and their growing family. I took a trip from Buenos Aires to Salinas. They live some 5,500 kilometers from my house. Thankfully, I didn't go by car. <laughs> I was able to go by plane. I went first to Peru, did some, did some work in Peru, and then I took a plane to Guayaquil, which is one of the largest cities in Ecuador, and then I took a bus from Guayaquil to Salinas and was able to spend a couple of days with them there. Um, it was winter when I went in Buenos Aires. It was cold. I was wearing hats and scarves, and they live on the beach, and that was nice. I even got sunburned on purpose to make people at home jealous of me that I had been to the beach. Um, so these are a few pictures of my time in Salinas. Um, we went walking, um, getting to know the city. They've been there since June June, I believe. And so they haven't been there that long as well. So we explored the city together. We did some touristy things. Um, we looked at different um, businesses that were open, what the city looks like, who lives in this kind of city. And we just had a really good time. Um, I had not met them before, other than through, through Zoom or through different kinds of communication. So it's really great to get to know them and their families as well. Um, Salinas is a beach town. It's on the coast of Ecuador, so it's a vacation spot for people who come down from the mountains who want a little sun. So it's a really great place. Um, That is Yuri, me photobombing my picture in front of the beach. Um, They call it the Salinas, the sunshine capital. Salinas, if you didn't know, means salt mines in Spanish. So if you have a Salinas, Colorado, for example, there's probably salt there. Um, The sunshine capital, they have 94,000 inhabitants in their city, so it's a quite a big city um, for, for the coast. And they have major industries like tourism, fishing, construction, and like salt production, like I said earlier. And what's interesting about coastal cities all over Latin America is you have a big mix of rich and poor. You'll find million-dollar apartment buildings next to very humble houses. And you'll find people going and spending thousands of dollars on tourism and luxury hotels. The people who work there might not make $10 a day. 
So it's an interesting place to serve uh, because there are people who are very wealthy and people who are, at the same time, very poor. This is one of the pictures of the missions team in Salinas. They got all dressed up for their inauguration of their, of their church and their church building. They're a good-looking group. There we go. This is the inauguration of their, of their church building. Um, they were able to rent a small space in the city where they can welcome people in. Um, all Latin people are different. We don't all eat tacos. We don't all speak Mexican Spanish. Um, people in Ecuador are somewhat shy and reserved compared to the places where I live. So people won't just go over to your house if you invite them. So having a church building for these guys is really great for them and for the work. And this is the first meeting of their church. Um, people from the community came, people from the Bible school came, family came from a different city to be with them and to support them on this day. So it was a really exciting day for them. In addition to regular church meetings, they're having youth meetings and inviting young kids from the neighborhood, inviting their neighbors, people that they meet at the supermarket, at coffee shops, all kinds of things, and inviting them to be a part of the church there. Um, they're working with a lot of neighborhood kids right now, kids who are coming um, to, their, to their youth meetings, and that's really exciting as well. One of the most exciting things that they're doing is working with what they're calling a soccer school. We call it a football school because that's the real football, if you didn't know that. So, Escuela de Fútbol, and they're inviting kids from a really poor community to train and practice football three times a week. And it costs one dollar... To, to sign up, and $1 a month to participate. And the missionaries provide all the jerseys, they provide um, the soccer balls, all the things that they need to train. And they just had their first game a couple days ago. And these kids, if they weren't at soccer school, they would probably be at home, um, possibly by themselves. Many of their parents have to work one or two jobs to make sure that they have enough food so they'd either be taken care of by grandma or grandpa or just home alone. So this soccer school gives them a chance to do something after school. And it's often um, helped a lot of the kids do better in school because mom says you can't go to soccer school unless you do well at school. So it's doing a lot of good for the kids in a lot of ways. And when they begin soccer school, they always start with a devotional. They talk about what, what Jesus has done for them. They ask about prayer requests, what's going on in their lives, what can they pray for. And after soccer school, one of the most exciting things is they will often go to one of the kids' houses and have a Bible study. And the family will do their best to make coffee or some hot tea, and then the missionaries will take bread or cookies and share with them. And the week that I was there, we were able to go to a Bible study, and the house where we went was so small we couldn't fit. So she brought coffee out to the sidewalk, and we sat on the sidewalk and had a Bible study with them, and shared coffee and shared bread, and it was a really great time. Um, this is how you build relationships with people. You get to know people, people get to know you, and you can share your faith in a more natural way. One of the most exciting stories is um, a lot of these kids, like I said, many times their parents are absent from their lives, not because they want to, but because financially they have to um, go out and work when they would rather be at home with their kids. And one of the young boys said to Judy B, the missionary, you're like a second mom to me because I feel like you really care about me and that you love me. 
So Judy, we had her birthday party at soccer school, and all the kids made a surprise gift for her. So in just a very short time, they've built relationships with the soccer, with the soccer um, kids and with their parents as well, and their grandparents, and with that whole community. And when we went rocking around town, kids would come up to them and say, hey, profe, profe, um, soccer coach, right? And people would recognize them all over town from the work that they're doing with the kids. And, and often to, to win parents over, we have to win their kids. We have to show that we love their kids. So they're doing a really good work with the soccer school. I think Northside can be very proud of the work that they have done in Salinas, Ecuador, in just this very short time. Mission work takes a long, long, long time. And often we think that things happen quickly. But if we think about Northside, if we think about the church where we were born or where we grew up, the church didn't become the church it is today, one day to the next. But it's really great to have been with them from the very beginning to see how God has patiently been working in them and through them to bless the city of Salinas, Ecuador. I want to ask a question this morning is, what kind of people would leave family and move to Salinas? What kind of crazy do you have to be to leave your family and move to a city that you've never been to, a coastal city in Ecuador? But to answer that question in good fashion, we have to ask another question, which is, who is the Trinitarian God of mission? Who is the Trinitarian God of mission? God created humans in order to share the love and communion that he enjoyed as a part of the Trinity. God himself is community. Have you thought of that? God himself is community. He is three and one, and they love each other. John talks about this in his gospel. Jesus loves the Father as the Father loves the Son. So they live together in communion and in love. And out of that love and communion that they shared and that they enjoyed, they created the world so that they could share that love beyond themselves. And in doing so, God opened himself up to love and to suffering. God opened himself up to love and to suffering. Can God suffer? Theologians throughout the centuries have debated about the impassibility of God. Is God able to suffer? Some say no. God cannot suffer from anyone outside of himself. Um, Others say that he can. And to answer those questions, we don't have a verse that says God suffers, but we have a story. Last time I was here, we talked about this great story, the salvation history, the way that God is redeeming all of creation It begins with creation, and later, the fall. Let's turn this off, and I'll use this. The fall, and then Jesus, and then God makes a plan to restore all of humanity through his incarnate son, right? But God does not come to us as a philosophy or a set of doctrines or as an idea. Have you thought about that? Many religions see God as an idea. That's what the Gnostics kind of believed. That God is more of an idea and that we accept him, we are illuminated, and we gain a special kind of salvation. But God comes to us as a person, as a God who speaks, as a God who comes down, who reveals himself, who interacts with those he loves, correcting, exhorting, disciplining, forgiving, and leading us 
with love. That is the God who comes to us. And after the fall, God unites himself with the people through a sacred bond that we call a covenant. He unites himself with a fickle, stubborn people in order to bring about the salvation of humanity. Why? (laughs) Because he loves us. Through his chosen people, he brings Jesus, the wounded healer, who is born in lowly circumstances, lives, ministers, dies, and is risen again from the dead. Jesus became one of us so that we might see God. This is the good news of Christmas, right? Jesus became one of us. He is the visible image of the invisible God. And by his wounds, we are healed. Jesus is our wounded healer. Jesus is our wounded healer. In Latin America, the two most common artistic depictions of Jesus have to do with his birth and with his death. So if we go to churches, if we go to museums, if we look in books, there will be a lot of pictures of Jesus' birth and a lot of pictures of Jesus' death. These are the most common artistic representations of Jesus, and they say a lot about Jesus. In its first moment, it points to Jesus' incarnation, the wonderful moment when God becomes one of us. And the next artistic representation points to his divine solidarity, the moment when God begins, begins to suffer in human flesh the consequences of our sin. It points to his death, part of the redeeming moment when Jesus gives himself up and self-giving love on behalf of all human beings. But there's another moment that we often don't see depicted in churches and in books and in museums. It's the risen Jesus that we often don't see. Often in Latin America, we don't dwell much on Jesus' resurrection, and possibly that's true here in the States. We often say, Jesus died for you. Is that correct? Yes, Jesus died for you. But he was also risen on your behalf. God raised him from the dead. And that same power that worked through Jesus to rise him from the dead is the same power that animates us in the life of the Spirit. So Jesus is not only God incarnate, the wounded healer who died to save us from sin and death, but the victor over the principalities and powers that opened the doors to new creation. I want us to think a little bit about the, the life of Jesus. If we look at early Christian creeds, we'll see that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary and died under Pontius Pilate. These are two very important theological moments. And for people to be Christians in the early church, they had to affirm that he was God in the flesh and that he died. He died for our sins. But in between his birth and his death, a lot happened, Right? A lot happened, and we often don't think about that as much. So I want, to, I want you to consider this morning that Jesus is our wounded healer. And could it be that his ministry could be programmatic for us? In other words, does Jesus' ministry set the tone for our ministry? Does Jesus' ministry teach us how to minister Often in Churches of Christ, when we tend to think about our identity and our work, we think about two things in theology. We think about ecclesiology, 
and we think about soteriology, which are just two big fancy words to say we think about how to do church, and we think about how to be saved. Those are our, our main concerns. Are we doing church right, and are we being saved? But I would suggest that one of the greatest things that we've neglected is Christology. Who is Jesus? What did he do? Why did he do it? And what does that mean for us today? We often go to Paul's letters to figure out how to do church. We often go to Paul's letters to discover how to be saved. But what if we went first to the four Gospels? What if we went to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? What if we read the four Gospels and asked ourselves what church should look like? Is that a good question for the Gospels? Each gospel writer was writing to a different church community and telling them how to be like Christ long before Paul was sent on missionary trips. So what if we went first to the gospels and could find in those stories ways for us to be like Jesus for those who surround us? Jesus, the poet of compassion, was announcing God's coming reign. He was proclaiming his own coronation as king of Israel as king of the world, through his death, burial, and resurrection. How did he do this? How did he tell people that he was God's coming king, that he was going to save the world, that he was going to govern over all of creation? Well, he proclaimed his mission. He taught, but what also did Jesus do? He healed the sick. He restored people's dignity. He cast out demons and evil spirits. He reunited families who were torn apart by sickness, by evil. He criticized the hypocrites. He denounced ungodly spiritualities. And he talked a lot about discipleship and full obedience to the God who saves us. Are we busy proclaiming? Are we busy talking? If we're going to look at the four Gospels and if we're going to look at Jesus, we have to be doing all these other things as well. So what kind of people would move to, to leave their families and move to Salinas, Ecuador? Alexis, Dainella, Kevin, and Juribi. What kind of people are they? They are people who love Jesus and have understood his radical call of discipleship. Not all of us are called to leave our families. Not all of us are called to move to a foreign country and to serve in planting churches. Nevertheless, we all share the same radical call to discipleship. I'll say it one more time. We all share the same radical call to discipleship. All of us serve and follow a wounded healer. Let me read these words to you from Isaiah 53. Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up like him, like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and acquainted with infirmity. And as one from whom others hide their faces, he was despised and we held him of no account. 
Surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases, yet we accounted him as stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole, and by his bruises we are healed. And we all like sheep have gone astray, we have all turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By a perversion of justice he was taken away. Who could have imagined his future? For he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. They made his grave with the wicked and his tomb with the rich. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him with pain. When you make his life an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring and shall prolong his days. Through him, the will of the Lord shall prosper. Out of his anguish, he shall see light. He shall find satisfaction through his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, shall make many righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil of the strong, because he poured out himself to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. We serve a wounded healer. Jesus told the disciples three times that he would be crucified, that he would be buried, and that he would rise the third day. And what did they say? Don't be silly. You don't need to do that. And when Jesus insisted, what did Peter say? I'll die with you. Did he? Not before he denied him three times. Many people didn't want a wounded healer. They wanted a strong king. They wanted someone to cast out the Romans. They wanted someone to be their powerful ruler. Yet Jesus chose to give himself up in self-giving love. He chose to be our wounded healer. So if you get to know our Salinas missionaries, or any missionary for that matter, you will soon find out that missionaries are deeply wounded by sin by their own sin, and by the sin of others. They are wounded, but have met the wounded healer and will never be the same again. What do missionaries in Salinas and missionaries all over the world do on a daily basis? Can they heal people with their own wounds? I can't heal anybody. <laughs> I don't know about you. I can't fix anyone either. I can't fix myself. Missionaries all over the world point to the wounded healer using their own wounds. They often point to the wounded healer sharing in part their own wounds and experiences of sin and brokenness. They do this by being vulnerable with their own failings and challenges and pointing others to Jesus who heals every wound. So what kind of people would move to Salinas? People who love Jesus and who know that all wounded humans need Jesus just as much as they do. 
What kind of church would support mission work in Salinas? A church that supports mission work is a church that knows its own failings and its own wounds. It is a church that has a profound experience with the risen Savior. It is a church that, knowing its own shortcomings, knows just how much they need Jesus and just how much others need Jesus as well. I am grateful that I was able to visit our missionaries in Salinas, Ecuador. It was so great to see God working in them and through them and to see how God is continuing to surprise them in the work in Salinas. And I am so grateful to be a part of this family here at Northside. We're not perfect. We're wounded like the rest of humanity, but we've also been forgiven. And through that forgiveness, we can point to the wounded healer who heals all wounds. If you have a need this morning and would like to talk to the elders, they'll be at the back waiting for you. Thank you so much.